Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? Hello to all of you joining us online as well. Yes, the internet is back up. And uh, yes, we're streaming today. That's good stuff. Hopefully you grabbed a bulletin on your way in today. You got an outline in there you can follow along with me. You could also scan that QR code, as Sarah said. And nobody cheats, only her. Okay, and so don't be cheating, all right. Sarah's giving away all the secrets, all right. Hey, if you got your Bible, open up to the book of John, please. The John in the New Testament, fourth gospel, chapter two, is where we're going to be at today. And we're going to look at some other verses as well. As you can tell from that video, we are starting a brand new series today called The Miracles of Jesus. Some of you guys are really looking forward to this one. And and this series is going to be kind of a walking tour of seven miracles that Jesus performed. And as I was preparing this series, I thought it would be really neat if we could envision ourselves walking right beside Christ as he was doing these miracles. What if we could like stand right there and watch them happen? Then we could listen to what Jesus said and then even understand better what all these miracles are even about. So that's what we're going to be doing in this series. So are you ready to go on a journey with me, everybody? Let's go. So today we're looking at the first miracle of Jesus. This is the miracle when Jesus turned the water into wine. So let's set the stage here, okay? So when Jesus performed this miracle, he had not yet launched his public ministry. And what's interesting is the climax of this whole story isn't the contrast of Jesus turning the water into wine. The actual climax of this story is that he saved the best for last. So we'll get to that in just a little bit. Now, weddings. Y'all like weddings? Weddings are fun, aren't they, right? Women, you guys plan your weddings from the time you're just a itty-bitty girl, right? Weddings are a big deal. Weddings are a big deal in our culture. They were a big deal in the first century as well. Just like today, right? So in those days, weddings were typically held on Wednesday night. Okay? And it would be a week-long party. And then after the wedding was over, the family would take the couple and put them into some kind of carriage, light some torches, and they would go around the streets in the community. And people who were not invited to the wedding, or maybe they couldn't come for whatever reason, they would come out from their house onto the street and applaud as the couples passed by. All right? Now, this is old school for some of us. It doesn't happen too often anymore. But do you all remember when people would tie cans behind a car? And they would paint the windows that said, just married, and then the couple would drive all over town? That's kind of the idea. So, Uh, you know, yes, students, we used to do that stuff. All right. Yeah, you call us crazy. All right. So if you got your Bible or in your outline, we're looking at John chapter two, and we're going to start in verse one. Here we go. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, let me stop right there. What you need to know at this point is Jesus only had five disciples at this point. There wasn't 12 yet. So here's this big problem, verse 3, when the wine was gone. Uh, Houston, we have a problem, right? Weddings 
We're a big deal. We've got dancing. We've got friends. We've got food. We've got family. But we're all out of wine. And keep this in mind. In those days, drinking to excess was completely forbidden by Jewish culture. Now, it may sound like here we've got this big party and a bunch of these people are a bunch of luscious, but that's not the case. The wine is just gone, and the verse continues. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, I want you to notice something here, that this is not just a statement for mom. It isn't like, you know, hey, Jesus, um, just a heads up, bro, if you go up to the bar, they're all out of wine. That's not what Mary is saying here. It's, it's, it's a statement with an ask. It's kind of like this. Um, <clears throat> son, they're out of wine. What are you going to do about it? And we know that this is the context here because of what happens in verse 4. Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, on the surface here, This could sound a little harsh because here's a 30-year-old man calling his mom woman. But this is the same Greek word that Jesus used when he was up on the cross and he looked down at John and said, take care of this woman. So it's actually kind of a, a sign of respect. It's not like you calling your mom or men, you calling your wife woman. Yeah, that, that, where I come from, that's a quick way to get a backhand. Okay, so it wasn't one of those things. It was more like, Dear woman, now, in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Now, let me stop right there. So in those days, it was the law that when you went to eat someplace, that you would wash from the tips of your fingertips all the way to your elbows. Okay? And all the people, they all knew that these jars were there and what they were for. So the scripture says, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now get your mind, six jars, 30 gallons apiece. Okay, let's press on, verse seven. So Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Verse eight, then he told them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did that, verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, verse 10, and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So here we have this miracle going on, and Jesus gets ready to start his earthly ministry, and it's this miracle's kind of a behind-the-scenes miracle. In fact, many scholars believe that a majority of the people at the wedding had no idea that anything had even happened, much less a miracle. Because unless you knew that the wine supply was even gone, you would have just been sitting there talking with your friends, having a great old time, and you'd be none the wiser. So this miracle takes place kind of behind the scenes. And so if you also think about it, Jesus is starting off his earthly ministry here. Now, just pause. Why not raise somebody from the dead? That would have gotten some people's attention. 
Why not give a blind person some sight? That would have worked. Why not cast out a demon? Now, on this side of the story, we know what the New Testament says. We know that these miracles take place later down the road. But why was this miracle his first one? What is the significance of that? So you can see in your outline that this miracle has a lot to do with people's expectations. And all, all through this account, folks, there are expectations going on. Let me talk about a few of them real quick. From, let's talk about expectations from the people attending the wedding. They're, they're there. They've given of their time to participate. So they're expecting some food. They're expecting some friendship. They're expecting wine. They're expecting dancing. All of the things that come along with a celebration. Jesus himself had expectations, He looked at his mom and said, it's not my time. He expected that the father was going to give him the thumbs up, like, okay, son, it's time for you to begin your earthly ministry now. Green light. I mean, Jesus did know that his earthly ministry was going to be starting very soon because he had just gotten baptized by John in the Jordan River, the chapter before this. Mary had expectations. She looked to Jesus and said, son, we're all out of wine. And she expected him to fix the situation. So pause for a second. When I read this story, and maybe I'm just the only one and I'm a little weird, but here you have Mary. And so I end up thinking about my own mom a little bit. So Mary's just as human as you and me. She's a full-on sinner. She needs a savior. And then you have Jesus here, who's her son, but he's fully God and fully human all at the same time, all right? So here's Mary sitting down. The wine runs out. She looks at her son and goes, they're out of wine. Fix it. And Jesus is like, Mom, my time hasn't come yet. And so Mary says to the servants after Jesus makes that statement, um, just do whatever he says. He'll take care of it. We got you covered. And in, so in my mind, I kind of see some humor here. And maybe I'm the only one or whatever, but I can see Jesus' mother looking at him. And like my mom used to look at me with the big eyes. Where Mary says to Jesus, I heard you. Now go do it. You know, that kind of thing, right? So Jesus basically gets voluntold by his mom here to go. Did you ever get voluntold by your mom to do something or am I the only one? All right. Some of you guys are nodding your heads. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so all through this story, there are these layers of expectations going on and different folks have different expectations. And here's what's interesting about expectations. All of us have them. And most of the time, they're running in the background of our life. They're there, we just don't see them, and we're not thinking about them very often. For example, when you came to church today, you had expectations. You had expectations of your Bible study leaders. You had expectations of your Bible study classmates. You even had expectations of the worship band and me when you walked in the door of this place. In your life and in your family's life, you have expectations of finances. You have expectations of relationships, especially if you're married. You have expectations of your kids. Kids, if you're still living at home, you have expectations of your parents. Adult students and adult kids, you have, and 
Yes, kids who are adults is what I mean. You have expectations of your elderly parents and vice versa. I mean, there's just all these expectations going on in our lives. And the list just goes on and on and on and on. And so we have all of these layers playing. And relationally, many times, the reason that we have conflict is because of unmet expectations or sometimes even unrealistic expectations. That as we walk through life, we have these expectations and they're not met by the people that we care about. Now, when they're met, life's good, isn't it? But when they're not met, the question now becomes, how do we respond? Do we respond in a healthy way? Do we respond in an unhealthy way? What about expectations that we have of the Lord? Of when God doesn't come into play the way we want him to. We get this unmet expectation of him. How do we respond to that? In order to respond in a healthy way, we actually have to pause for a second. We have to stop. We have to think and ask this question. What are the expectations anyway? Because we all have them. They're running in the background And this story, the water into wine, is all about, congregation, expectations that go unmet. And here's what it teaches us. It teaches us that we're all going to have seasons in life where we're going to have unmet expectations. And they're going to be not met. So the question becomes, how do we respond? So let's look at that today. How do we move forward? in a healthy way. And how do we still act like and live like the way Jesus wants to? So in your outline, here's the big idea I have. I'm sorry it's not very encouraging, but you see that we have to recognize that things may get worse before God makes them better. Many times we go through seasons. We have these unmet expectations and things get worse before they get better. Truth is, This is consistent all throughout Scripture. For example, you remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? Joseph, he was called to be a leader, but he was sold into slavery by his older brothers. And then later down in the story, he was even put in prison. Things got worse before they got better. David, he was called to be king of Israel. Before he did that, he hid in the caves of Ein Gedi. And he was in fear of his life. Peter, before God used him on the day of Pentecost, he had to experience God's grace because he denied Jesus. Even for us, we pray for world peace, right? We pray for all of us to get along, and if you've read the scripture, and if you know it, then you know how the story goes. You know how the story ends. Things are going to get worse before God makes them better. So with all the chaos going on in the world out there, We shouldn't be very surprised. And so here's what's great of this. As a believer, I want you to talk with me, church. As a believer, you sit here today with your past, present, and future sins forgiven. Amen? Okay, the rest of you, hopefully you'll join in. And then you have a home in heaven with Jesus. Amen? All right, we're getting there. And you have a God who will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you or ever stop loving you. Amen? Amen. Amen. All of that is true. But in order for any of that to ever take place, 
Jesus had to be arrested, beaten, spit upon, and crucified on a cross. He had to be willing to give up his own life before any of that could ever take place and before he could resurrect from the grave. All of that was necessary in order for us to experience a future resurrection one day. Things will get worse before God makes them better. That's the way that it is. I know it's not a principle that we want to celebrate or we don't get excited about. Not like lunch today. We're getting excited for lunch, right? Yeah, woohoo. I have not eaten in a long time, so I'm getting there. All right. But this isn't something that we get excited about, but it is true. And the reason why we don't get excited about a principle like this is because we want things to get resolved quickly, and we want to move on in life, but that's just not how it goes sometimes. I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 in your outline with me. Here's what 1 Peter says. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Notice that it says, after you have suffered a little while. The key word right here is after. After you have suffered, God will himself restore you and make you, and here's the promise, he'll make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Somebody say amen. Now, I've mentioned to you all before that with every promise in Scripture, there is a premise. You see it right here. With this one, the promise comes after you have suffered a little while. Remember, any suffering that you endure here on earth as a believer in Jesus Christ is for the sole purpose of God transforming you into the image of his son. And so the story here of the water turning into wine is about expectations, specifically unmet expectations, and it causes us to trust Christ in a greater way. So let's look at a couple of things that we should do when we have unmet expectations in life. In your outline, how do we live through unmet expectations? Number one is this. We have to look to Jesus for your solution. Whenever you've got an unmet expectation in life, my question to you is, when you evaluate yourself, where is that place that you're looking for relief at? Is it a person? Is it a place? Is it a thing? Is it the internet? Is it social media? What do you turn to? All the unmet expectations that you have in your life, when they come relationally, financially, work stresses, or, or just whatever it is, where do you turn to? Here's what John says back in chapter 2, verse 10. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. As I mentioned earlier, that the climax of the whole story is right here. It isn't the water turning to wine. It's about Jesus bringing out the best because that's what Jesus did here. He brought out the best. In any given situation, congregation, whenever you have an unmet need, Jesus is looking to bring out the best. So what does that tell you about your life? What does it tell me about mine? Here's the reality. If we look to somewhere else, 
or someone else or something else other than Jesus for relief of our unmet expectations, we're never going to get anything better than second best. That is the top of the line that that gets to. It is only through Jesus that we can receive first best, the best. Only Christ brings that out in us. Only Christ brings out the best in us. John chapter 16, verse 24. It says, until now you have not asked for anything in my name. So if you remember uh, back earlier this year when we did the prayer season uh, series, when you strip everything back to the bones about prayer, It's this, you come to a place in life where you recognize, I can't, but God can. That's prayer. That's the bones of prayer. And you know that that's true because when you're praying, you've tried everything else. And it's kind of like God saying, man, you should have came to me first. Right, until now, and this is this verse right here, until now you haven't been asking for anything in my name. You've been doing it all on your own power. You've been running the show trying to solve your own problems and meet your own needs and fix your own life. How's that working for you? And so Jesus says, ask and you will receive and your what church? Your joy will be complete. Now, what is joy? Joy is not happiness. Do not confuse the two. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is short-lived. Boop, that's it, it's done. It's gone in an instant. Joy is internal. Joy says, regardless of the circumstances that I'm facing right now, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because he is God and he's got this. There is submission and surrender to God. He is the provider of all my needs. The Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And I'm seeing all of these unmet circumstances and these unmet expectations that I have and all these bad things through this lens of who God is. And it's not just what my eyes see. See, and when you get there, then you start to understand that God is way bigger than any problem that you have. As we sang earlier, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher than any other. Congregation, do you actually believe that? Who are you looking to to solve your problems? As believers, we need to look to Jesus for solutions. We only get the best through him. Amen? Number two in your outline. You have to do what Jesus says. Week after week after week, church after church after church, preachers around the world, they're all preaching on this idea of obeying God, doing what he says. Now, why do we do that so much? It's actually kind of simple. Because we as human beings, it is in our nature to disobey God. It's what we do. Our old nature, as we talked about last week, is constantly pulling at us trying to do what the flesh wants and not what the Holy Spirit wants. We wander and we wander and we wander. You guys remember the old song, Come Thou Found? Prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And obedience is a foundational issue for the disciple of Christ. If you want to call yourself a disciple of Christ, you must obey the Lord Jesus. John chapter two, verse five. Here's Mary talking. His mother said to the servants, 
do whatever he tells you to. It's probably something like that too. So when you look at your life this morning, do you hear the voice of Mary saying to you, do whatever he tells you to, right? Are you obeying what God has called you to do? Not the things that you're unsure of, not the vague stuff. I'm talking, brothers and sisters, the stuff that is clearly marked out in Scripture. Are you doing that? If we say we have faith in God, but then we don't act on that, if we don't support that claim, do we really believe God? Think about it. Is it something that we actually believe? Or is it just lip service? See, faith isn't passive. Faith is active. And James, the brother of Jesus here, he says it well. In your outline, James 2, verse 17, he says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So check it out. The only way that I can think of, and this makes sense to me, the only way that you will know that God's grace is sufficient for you is if when you're tested, and that you actually apply what his word says. Because that's when it's like the aha moment comes in your life. And if you sit here today and you say, oh, I believe in God. I believe in God. I believe his grace is sufficient. Amen, church. And then you don't live out what his word says in your life, especially when the difficult times come. Beloved, hear me. You don't actually know that that verse is true. Now, you can read the verse. You can assume it's true. But knowing it is a totally different experience. Anybody can come to a church anywhere and say that they have faith all day long and even twice on Sunday. But unless we actually apply the scripture to our life and live it out in obedience to Jesus, then it's just lip service from us. So when you have trials in life, when you're tested, that is when we learn that God's grace is true and his grace is sufficient for us. Because honestly, everybody, God helps us to get through all the difficult situations in our life. Let's have a little survey real quick, all right? Testimony time. Y'all ready to participate? I want you to raise your hand in this room. Here, let me finish. If you've ever read a verse in the Bible and then you were obedient to it, now hold on. You basically put God's word in action. And then you experience the Lord actually come through on his end of the bargain. If that's you, raise your hand for me today. Now just look around the room. That is a testimony congregation of God working in the life of his people. Awesome. Everybody who raised their hand, praise the Lord. Give God some praise for that. So I come back to all of us. Are you being obedient to the word of God in your life? Some of us say that we're having trouble with our finances. I say, okay, okay, I get that. My response to you is, are you being obedient to the instruction that God gives us in his word about how to manage finances? Listen, God wants us to give. His word's clear about it. And giving isn't just about giving. No, Giving is about aligning our hearts with the God of the universe. It's about 
understanding who the true provider is. Remember, as believers, everybody, we believe what Jesus said. And he said in Matthew 6 that we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added unto you. So if we say God is first, God is number one, he's my number one, I'm his homie, because some people say that, we can say that all day long. But if God is not first in our finances, then, beloved, the truth is God is not first in your life. Then who's really first? I think we know the answer to that. How do we know that, Pastor Wayne? How do you, where do you get that from? Real simple. God says, put me first place. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So I come back to the idea I, have, I had a few minutes ago. With every promise, there is a premise with God. You have to seek God's kingdom first. Then all these things will be added unto you. And how we check to see if our hearts are actually in alignment with Jesus is in the area of finances. Because Jesus recognized that where our treasure is, that's where our heart's going to be. That's what he said. We say we want the Lord to bless our finances. And, and I hear that a lot as a pastor. And I just want you to understand that that I know that you want God to bless your finances, and, and I support that. But my response to you, friendly accountability is, is, as your brother in Christ, is say, are you doing what Scripture says? And the truth is, this goes beyond finances, everybody. It goes to all the areas of life, relationships, raising kids, dealing with adult kids. Friends, work, coworkers, I mean, whatever it is. If you want God's blessing in your life, you have to do things his way. You have to be obedient to his word. Can I just be candid with you here, everybody? Let's just be family here for a second. God only plays ball by his rules. That's it. And when the rubber meets the road, obedience is required by him. Okay? So that, that's just how it is. So here's what's interesting about this. You see in your outline. Jesus understands this, and so Jesus and the servants obeyed. Both of them obeyed. And when both of them obeyed, a miracle happened. What would Jesus do? Whenever we have unmet expectations, we're called to look like Christ. We're called to obey Christ. We're called to be obedient to what he says in the Scripture. And in the water and the wine story that we're looking at today, they're all out of wine. Jesus tells the servants, fill up the jars. And I want you to see this. On one hand here, Jesus is saying, mom, it's not my time. And on the other hand here, his mom is saying, oh, it's your time. Get to it, son. You've been living at home. You're 30 years old. You got five friends crashing on the couch. It's time to leave the nest, son. You're getting a job today. And today is the day you're starting your ministry. So chop, chop, get on it. <laughs> Something like that, right? So this miracle takes place. And it causes us to pause for a second and just ask the question, why does Jesus obey his mom? I mean, Scripture doesn't say in this section here that the heavens opened up and a voice from heaven that says, ready, set, 
Go. Okay, Jesus, begin your ministry. That doesn't happen here. But in chapter 1, we see the heavens open up where God says, hey, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. So what if, and just go with me on this, what if Jesus, as fully God, knows his own word? What if he knows the very Ten Commandments since he's the one who spoke them? I mean, he did give them to Moses on Mount Sinai 1,500 years before that. Remember the Ten Commandments? What was one of them? One of them was about honoring your parents. Exodus 20, 12. It's in your outline. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Some of you will go, wait, Jesus said that to Moses? Jesus is God, and God spoke that to Moses. It's that simple. So in this story here, I personally believe that Jesus is in a little bit of a dilemma. He does what he should do. He obeys his mom because it was the right thing to do. And then the servants top off the jars. And then think about this. It's entirely possible that the water that was in the jars, it wasn't fresh water at all. In fact, some scholars believe that the water that was in the jars was the same water that was used that everybody washed their hands with. Ew. Yeah, ew. And you know what? The servants still obeyed Jesus. And as they're pouring out the jar, water that was in the jars, they see that it's now something else. It's not that yucky water anymore. It was wine. The Greek calls it fruit of the vine. Not just any old wine, though, was it? Uh Uh-uh. It was the best. Fresh grape juice is always better than the yucky fermented stuff. So this causes us to pause for a moment and think through what's going on. See, in our life, we're all going to have unmet expectations. And when those times come, who do we look for for help? And in the midst of those unmet expectations and all the emotions that you're feeling in real time, you got to ask yourself, Am I going to be obedient to what God has called me to do? See, I believe that the miracle in our life happens when we look to Christ and we obey what he says. I believe that God is still a miracle-working God. I've seen families reunited. I've seen lives transformed. I've seen parent-child relationships healed. I've seen alcoholics turn their back on the bottle. The list goes on and on and on. You have seen miracles happen in your life when you, and when you are obedient to a great and wonderful and powerful God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and his name is Jesus. There are six stone jars in this story. Six. Six is an imperfect number. Seven is a perfect number. Ten is a complete number. Did you know that? And see, these jars here, they represent a customary law. You had to wash your hands. 
to clean your soul before you could eat. And Jesus comes in, takes the law of the Old Testament, and he uses it for an illustration of the perfection of his grace. See, this wasn't just a little bit of wine, was it? Mm -mm. We're talking about somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Six jars by 30 gallons each. Imagine 180 gallons of milk right behind me. That's a lot. That's a lot. We're talking about a massive amount of wine here. And what does it represent? Congregation, here it is. It is a picture of God's grace. That regardless of where you live or where you come from or whatever's going on in your life, what you've done in your past, God's grace is sufficient for you. His grace is more than enough for you. And the Jews understood what those jars were for. And all of a sudden, there's more than enough wine for everybody at the wedding. And it wasn't just one cup per person. There's 180 gallons of it sitting around. That represents an endless amount. What seemed like a never-ending supply. That's just like God's grace is to us. There is a never-ending supply of God's grace to you and to you and to you and to you back over there. It never ends, brothers and sisters. It covers every area of your life and every mistake that you have ever made and every sinful mistake that you will ever make in the future. And when you recognize this reality, The question really becomes, and here's what I want to close with. How do we still not look to God to meet our every need? How can we still not obey him after everything that he's done and everything that he's called us to do? Jesus died on that cross to set us free from the bondage of sin and to forgive us of our sins. His forgiveness is available to you and to you and to you and even you down over here. And his forgiveness is available not someday, but this day. I just want to encourage you to ask him for it. Will you obey the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand and pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, we just come before you right now just to give you praise and to give you honor and to sing a thousand hallelujahs to who you are. Father, you are worthy of our praise right now. And we thank you for this miracle that you performed so many years ago to demonstrate how sufficient your grace is to us. Lord, many of us in this room today, we acknowledge our failures. We acknowledge our shortcomings. We acknowledge the the fact that we have tripped in our life and we have fallen on our face. We have made mistakes. We have sinned against you, God. 
And so, Lord, we, we just we take those and we lay them at your feet today. For believers in the room this morning, congregation, I just encourage you right now that the, the cares that you have, the, the burdens that you have in your life, the things that are blocking your relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage you right now to just lay those at his feet. And just repent of those sinful choices that you've made. This is your opportunity now to just give those to Jesus. And if you're in our room today or you're watching us online and maybe you don't know Jesus is Lord, you've never bowed your knee to Christ, you've never asked him for forgiveness of your sins, today's that day. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. So I just want to invite you right now as you hear my voice to simply humble yourself and look to Jesus as the solution for your problems and repent of your sin. And to do that, just say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. I admit that I am a sinner. I believe that you came and I confess you right now as my Lord and Savior. Enter my heart. I want to live for you. So if you're with us today, I want to encourage you to make that decision. All of us praying in the room right now, God, we just come before you with our hearts wide open, Lord, saying, fill us. Fill us with your presence. Fill us with your spirit, God. Help us to realize that we have unmet expectations in our life, God, and we are in need of you to help us get through that. Lord, help us to be realistic with our expectations. Help us to show love and to show care and compassion to the people that we have relationships with, God, so that you will be glorified in our lives. God, that is our desire today. We want to honor you with our decision-making. We want to honor you with our life. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us. Thank you for an opportunity where we can worship in freedom today. And so, God, I pray for everybody in this room today. Fill their lives, fill their homes with your presence and your spirit. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Everybody looking at me.